I invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 as we now begin uh, the study of the seven uh, letters, the letters to the seven churches. As Jesus um, has a word with the church uh, then and today, as we've said before, these uh, letters are not just written to seven specific churches in Asia Minor uh, back around uh, 90 AD. They clearly are that, but they're um, meant to be letters for the church throughout the world and of all ages. And so this is a letter for us this morning. We're going to read the first seven verses, and let's give our attention to God's Word. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh God, we come once again acknowledging our need for your help. Uh, Lord, spiritual things cannot be discerned apart from the spirit of Christ. And we want to hear the words of our Savior so that, that we not only understand them, but receive them and experience their sweetness and their transforming power. And all, Lord Jesus, for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Could you imagine this morning that I um, took a, a piece of paper and, and said to you, I've received a message this morning. Uh, I was in my study, and uh, an angel appeared and handed me this piece of paper. It's a letter uh, that's directly from Christ, Jesus it's addressed to uh, Harvest Church in Wyoming, Michigan. That's us. And I've been commanded to read this letter to you and then read the letter. Uh, how, how would that strike you? How would, how would uh, you feel if you believed that that's exactly what had happened and that uh, Jesus had a very specific message for you the church here at Harvest. Um, well, that's exactly what has happened in Revelation chapter 2. This is what's happening to the churches in Asia Minor. An angel has appeared. There is a, a, a letter given to them. Jesus has a very specific message for them, each of, of them. To the angel in the church of Ephesus, write, and it'll be for every uh, particular church. As I said, these are uh, then both and, both letters to particular churches addressing particular issues, 
but we're going to find that these are also letters addressed to the church throughout the world and throughout the ages, and thus these are, um, this is a letter for Harvest Church. In every meaningful way, uh, Ephesians, uh, uh, Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7 is a letter from Christ to us just as certainly and truly as if an angel had appeared to me this morning and handed me a piece of paper. Uh, the Jesus who spoke to John is speaking this morning by his word and spirit to you. Uh, the Jesus who knew the deeds of the church in Ephesus knows the deeds of Harvest Church. Uh, in Jesus' commendations and condemnations for the church in Ephesus, we're going to find that he has a word to speak to us. These letters are from Christ to the church just as certainly today as it was true then. And as we noticed last week, these are, are letters written, by, uh, given to us by a glorious, stunning, overwhelming, real Jesus. The, the Jesus that appeared to, to John was, was overwhelming in his glory. Uh, his, his might and holiness and judgment and splendor and power reduced John, the, the disciple who maybe was closer to Jesus than any of the other disciples, reduced John to a quivering pound, a pile of flesh. I fell at his feet as though dead. This godly old 90-year-old man who knew Jesus on earth, who has been a faithful apostle of Christ for 60 years, is, uh, crumbles at the feet of this Jesus. Not because he's terrified, he's just overwhelmed at the glory of Jesus as he is. And that's the Jesus who speaks to us this morning. He's magnificently beautiful and overwhelming, but he loves us, and he has a word for us. Uh, Jesus introduces himself to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, Jesus reminding his church of his authority and his presence He's with the church, and he's with the church because it's his church. We, we need to see Jesus here in his uh, unique, special relationship to the church. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He rules over all the nations. They're all a, like a drop in the bucket. They're all in his hand. But the church is his house. It's like if you have a company and you own the company and, uh, and you do things at your company, that matters. But when you come home, it's a different thing. It's your house. This is The church is Jesus' holy temple. The church is his precious bride. The people for whom he shed his atoning blood. The assembly of God's elect those who've been made new creations, those who've been made children of God, those who've been made citizens of heaven and ambassadors to the world. The, the, the church is the only body in the world filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ and commanded to carry out the mission of Christ. There isn't a plan B. And so you can see why Jesus cares about the church, it's 
his church. He's attached his name to this church. He has given his life for this church. He's fully invested. And he speaks then, you see, as the loving Lord and head of his church. And he has a word of commendation for them in verses 2 and 3. I know your works. This is, this is spoken as an encouragement. This is a suffering church. And one of the great discouragements when we're going through difficult times is, is maybe the feeling that we're doing it uh, alone, unnoticed. Does anybody, does anybody care? Does anybody notice? Does anybody see? And Jesus says, yes, I know. I care. I see. He lovingly commends this church. I know your works. I know that you have toiled hard in this fight of faith. I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles. And they're not apostles. And you found that out. You discerned that truth. You've not grown weary in this a fight of faith in this battle against false teaching and this striving for the good of the church. I know, Jesus says. Jesus knows that it wasn't easy to be a Christian in Ephesus. It wasn't easy to be a church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a, um, is a very large city, several, thousand, uh, several hundred thousand members. Uh, but uh, more importantly, it is the primary city in the region of Asia Minor. Politically, commercially, and religiously, spiritually. Uh, the, the boast of Ephesus among, well, they would have several boasts. The, the two primary boasts are their temples. Uh, the temple of Domitian. Domitian was the emperor of Rome. Domitian believed that he uh, was a god and deserved to be worshipped as a god. And his temple is in Ephesus. And that, that temple would dominate the road coming in, the land road, uh, into the city. And there, there was banking done there. Uh, but this was the place uh, from which emanates the worship of Domitian. And guess who's not going to worship Domitian as emperor? The church isn't. Uh, if you come to the city by sea, which was a very, um, very common because it was, the, it was the most important port in the area... Uh, you, you come into the harbor, and there is the temple to Diana. It's magnificent. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's about 260 feet wide. That's the length of my yard from ro the road to the fence. That's how wide it is. It's a block and a half long, 60 feet tall, 127 columns around it. It's incredible. It's magnificent. And these two temples, with all their pagan power and moral perversion, dominate the culture of Ephesus. It is a thoroughly, aggressively pagan city. Every possible corruption of truth and morality is found there. Even unbelievers were shocked at the debauchery of the pagan feasts and the temple practices. Heraclitus wrote that the morals of the temples were worse than the morals of animals. He says, quote, the people who engage in that 
were fit only to be drowned. Disgusted with what goes on every day in the worship of these pagan temples. And yet the church there in Ephesus is a growing, vibrant, um, faithful church-planting congregation. It is the mother church of all the seven churches that will be referenced. They've all been planted by the church in Ephesus. And it's a church that uh, can boast an impressive succession of pastors. Paul, the apostle, planted the church and then was their pastor for three years. It was the longest he stayed in any of the churches that he planted. Uh, Apollos, known as a great preacher and teacher, was there uh, as a pastor in Ephesus, helped by Priscilla and Aquila. uh, Timothy, Paul's protege, was the pastor for years in Ephesus. And then the Apostle John, the one who's writing uh, this letter, uh, John was the pastor there until his uh, imprisonment on Patmos. And so it's a very, it's a very strong and fruitful city and a, a church. And, and the, great, the great temptation, the great uh, uh, obstacle that they faced um, was, was not so much the pagan culture around them. It was the, the um, presence of false teachers that uh, continued to try to lead people astray. The devil tried to destroy the church by corrupting their teaching. Paul had warned them this would happen. So if you remember in Acts chapter 20, this is the last time Paul is going to meet with the elders uh, of Ephesus, and he he meets them in Miletus, and he tells them, uh, watch over the flock which the Holy Spirit, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. And that was a constant battle in Ephesus. Paul had given Timothy this charge. As I urged you, this is 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul again says to Timothy, you need to remember that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is what the church in Ephesus was up against. It's, it's what the church throughout its history has always been up against. The devil's, the devil's greatest way to weaken the church and destroy the church is ho- has always been through false teachers who speak twisted things. That, that word is used throughout uh, the New Testament. It means that false teachers will come and they won't deny uh, biblical doctrine as much as twist biblical doctrine and just give it a slightly different meaning and thereby uh, are able to draw people away from the faith once for all handed down to the saints. The problem is not only that you have uh, these teachers, the problem is people like twisted teaching. It suits their desires. It makes sense to them. And so when you have a health wealth teacher who promises you that God's 
greatest desire is to help you flourish in this life and to be free of illness and to, uh, to have healing if you're sick uh, and, and to make you rich and get rid of all your debts. Well, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want that God? If, if Jesus came to do that for me, well, well, sign me up. I got debts as high as the ceiling and, and, and I'm, uh, I've got these serious illnesses. Show me how I, you see, it makes sense to people. And that's, that's true across the board. The social gospel that, that so devastated the church um, of, uh, of Great Britain and here in America, your mainline churches, devastated by a, by a message that uh, Jesus, what he really came to do is make this world a better place, and we've been called to participate and, and help people be kinder and more moral. Well, that's, that's, that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. And yet when that, you see that message just gets twisted and it's plausible and it seems reasonable and, and people run after it. So the, that, that's what the church always faces. And Paul says, uh, that's, what's, uh, that's what's happened in Ephesus. That Jesus says, I commend you. You cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who uh, call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And so the, 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 the church in Ephesus would hear a teaching and they would open their Old Testament scriptures or they would remember what Paul had taught them and, and uh, they would examine this new teaching and they would say, well, that's, that's not right. They practice discernment. It's one of the greatest needs um, in the church, one of the greatest crises currently in the church particularly the American church. Just read an article this past week on a Gospel Coalition site about uh, Rachel Hollis. You maybe have heard of her. She's a top-selling, uh, number one New York Times bestseller. Uh, she's a Christian author, she says, who um, is teaching self-help, self-actualization, achieve-your-dreams sort of theology. The problem is that Christian women are buying her books, scooping them up by the score. So she has books like Girl, uh, uh, Wash Your Face, A Girl, Stop Apologizing, uh, the, the article in the, um, in the, Christian, the Gospel Coalition website, written by a woman, was entitled, Girl, Follow Jesus. That's a great response. Follow Jesus. You can read the article yourself. It's fantastic. It's exercising biblical discernment. It's critical. A church cannot survive without exercising discernment. We need to just simply have the ability to say, well... That's not what the Bible teaches. Just, just quickly, the, the Rachel Hollis was talking about um, how her we have to uh, we have to serve in the areas of our strengths. That her wheelhouse is not you know being home watching three kids and changing diapers. Her wheelhouse is going to conferences and writing books and and speaking. And the, and this lady just says, well, whose wheelhouse is changing? I mean, changing diapers isn't in anybody's wheelhouse. Jesus doesn't say, take up your wheelhouse and follow me. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And the path of serving Jesus is going to look like weakness. Not like uh, going to your strengths so that you can actualize all your potential. It's a different message. But you've got to exercise discernment. So the church in Ephesus, Jesus praises them for this. Jesus delights in this. But discernment all by itself isn't enough. You see, you can't survive without discernment, but neither can you survive without love. And so Jesus says in verse 4, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. 
You've abandoned the love you've had at first. Again, remember who's talking. Jesus, King of kings, the Lord of the universe, the one whom John has just collapsed in front of. Uh, This Jesus says, I have something against you. Those are really weighty words. What do you do if Jesus has something against you? Well, you pay attention. And this rebuke, and it is a rebuke, but it it comes from a heart of of sovereign love for his bride. Jesus is concerned. They've they've abandoned something. They've left something behind. And what they've left behind is love. Now, there's, there's all sorts of debate about what love is Jesus talking about? Is this love for Jesus? Is it love for God? Is it love for, uh, for one another? Is it, is it something else? In my studies, um, it's, it struck me that most preachers take this to mean love for Christ. And, and I think they do that for two reasons. It preaches well. And it, it, uh, it seems to come from the King James Version, um, you've abandoned your first love. So by, by uh, interpreting the phrase here, first love, it's, it, it sounds like you've abandoned your primary love, the most fundamental love. And that, of course, would be love for God and love for Jesus. Unfortunately, that's not the, the best translation of the Greek. The, 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 best, the, better, the best translation of the Greek here is uh, expressed in the ESV. It's the love you had at first, which is why Jesus in verse 5 says, uh, go back and do the works you did at first. That's what repentance is going to look like. So, so most commentators, you see, um, recognizing this, show that the love here is not the, uh, it's not their primary love that they've abandoned, but their prior love they've abandoned. It's a love they once had and now they're no longer practicing and that, again, the, the, the call to repentance reflects that. Jesus is not uh, saying, repent and recover loving affections for me. He says, repent and recover loving actions for one another. Do the, the works, the deeds you did at first. Loving deeds in the Bible, in particularly New Testament, uh, are always practical acts of grace and kindness and service for others. And so that's the failure. It's a, fa- it's a failure to love each other with that gracious, sacrificial, servant love they once had. And they had it at one time. If you remember Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So this was written probably about 30 years prior to this letter. Paul had said to them in Ephesians chapter 1.15... Uh, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The the church in Ephesus was known for faith in Jesus Christ and for love toward all the saints. And Jesus now says, you've abandoned that. You've forgotten about love. Well, let's just stop a minute now. Ask, how do you do that? How do you forget about love? Well, <clears throat> you get busy. Uh, life just goes on. How does it happen in marriages? How do you forget to love each other? Well, 
Because there's all kinds of stuff happening. And, and if you're, particularly if you're going through suffering and trials, we tend to focus on ourselves. Um, we, get, we, get, we get proud. We get lazy. We get forgetful. It happens, it happens really quite easily if we're not paying attention to it. And, and it happens, it'll happen uh, particularly when we forget about Jesus and the gospel. And that's why John, remember their former pastor, when he was writing 1 John, he, he highlights in his first uh, letter how important love is. We read from chapter 3 that this is an essential part of, uh, of being a Christian. Let me just get rid of this minute. Um, in, in chapter 4, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever does not love has not been born of God. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't say, I love God, and then hate your brother. At the same time, you're a liar. If God so loved us by sending Jesus, then we also ought to love one another. He says in chapter, in, in, in chapter 4, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It means his love is manifest in us. For the world to see the love that God has for sinners in Jesus Christ, they're going to see it as they watch Christians love each other. You see, this failure is, is a critical failure because it, it's a renunciation of the gospel message of God's love for sinners, and it's an abdication of the church's mission. Beale, in his commentary, points out that the threat, Jesus' threat, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand, is um, it, it's directly related to their failure to be a lamp. Right? If you're not going to use this thing, I'm taking it out of here. If you're not going to engage in a love that bears witness to a watching world, then uh, we're going we're to remove the lamp. Beale says, if they will not exercise their call to be a lamp of witness, then their lamp will be removed, as it was with Israel in the Old Testament. We have precedence. If they do not repent, Christ will judge them. They will cease to exist as a church when the very function that defines the essence of their existence is no longer performed. Beale is saying, I think he's right, that the church exists to bear witness. We're here to bear witness to one another, to bear witness to our children. We're here to bear witness to a watching world. And you can't do any of those things without love. And if we're not going to love each other in that way, then we're, then we're not shining light. We're failing as witness. And so Jesus says, um, I really don't have a use then for you. I, I, that's, a, that's a strong word. And I think it's just a wonderful reminder to us that churches throughout history have failed here in love and in mission long before they failed in orthodoxy. That you can find throughout history churches that were very strong in orthodoxy, just weak in love and mission, and they no longer exist. It's a penchant warning for us. Being orthodox is essential, but it's never enough. Uh, the, the orthodoxy that delights the heart of Jesus is an orthodoxy that moves us to love and to mission. 
Pastor Wayne's going to talk more on this tonight from John 17. Jesus' prayer that there be, the church might be one so that the world may know. It's essential. And the Jesus who prayed that prayer before going to the cross is the same Jesus talking here and to us today. And so he gives us a command. Verse 5. Remember from where you've fallen. Three R's. Remember, repent, and if you don't, I'll remove. Remember where you've fallen. There was a time in the past where they did love each other in this sacrificial way. And now they've left off it. And I think it's important for us as, as a church to remember, maybe there were times in our past where we, we were better at taking care of each other and watching out for each other. And maybe some will say, well, we just got too big. Well, I don't think that will work for Jesus. Our houses are still there. We can still do hospitality. We can still do small groups. We can still we can open our eyes to see people who are hurting and needy. We can still take action. You don't, have to, you don't have to have everybody in the church over to your house. But you could have some, right? Remember. Repent. Repent means turn. Turn away from this, this disastrous direction, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, and, and turn towards uh, obedience to Christ. Do the works you did at first. It's very clear, isn't it? And then he says, uh, thirdly, if you don't, I will remove your lampstand from, your plate, from its place unless you repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus would always say this. It just means um, that the word has been spoken. Those who have an ear by the Spirit of God will hear what the Spirit says and respond. And those who don't, won't. But either way, no one is left with an, with an excuse. We've heard the word. We need to apply it. I think <clears throat> it's worth noting that this, this warning is spoken directly to the congregation. Here's a church that has been blessed with probably the greatest lineup of preachers uh, that, of any church in the history of the church. They've, they've had tremendous leadership. Their failure is a failure to apply, you see, what they had heard. A failure to live in light of the gospel that they had been taught. It's a failure to shine the gospel light. And it's on them, you see. It's, they can't say, well, Lord, if you just would have sent us some preachers. If we just could have had some better sermons. Better pastors. It's not going to work. It's, it's on them. You see, good preaching and teaching is essential for the health of the church. But it can only do so much. At the end of the day, a church, what it, what it will look like, uh, how it loves, how it shines, how it engages in mission, it's up to the church. Preachers can't make you practice hospitality. You just have, you have to make a decision. Are we going to set time in our schedule to open our home to other people or not? And there's no preacher in the world can make you do that. Preaching and teaching can't make you give up old grudges. Can't make you 
actually forgive and be restored to a brother and sister in Christ. A good theology cannot make you open your eyes to see the visitor standing alone in the foyer so you go and you love them. Or it can't make you see the young person who for some reason is being left out of the group so you go and you invite them in. Orthodoxy can't make us actually love each other and can't make us actually love a lost world around us so that we sacrificially engage in the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. Good preaching and good teaching and good theology and orthodoxy can't make any of that happen. We've got a decision to make. I've got a decision to make. You can't make it happen in my life either. There's two things that we do know. Jesus isn't kidding either with his command or with his threat. We know that, don't we? And secondly... Jesus is the only one who can help us. Jesus is the only one who can actually make it happen. As we confess our sin and look to him, he's not just, he's not just snapping the whip here. Right? Notice the great promise he gives to encourage us to pursue this. Um, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Friends, that's all the marbles. There's not a better promise. There's not, a, there's not a something more after that. If you get to eat of the tree of life, which means everlasting life, eternal life, in the presence of God, communing with God forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth, there's not a plus behind that. Something else. That's it. That's everything. That's what you were created for. That's what Jesus died to give us in, uh, in his death and resurrection. And, and Jesus says, I promise you, it's yours. If you conquer. Well, how do we conquer? Well, we'll be studying that more and more throughout the book. It's a, it, it shows up throughout the book. We conquer by standing in the faith and showing love towards the saints so that the mission goes on. That we do not love our own lives even unto death. We conquer by abiding in Jesus. We conquer by believing his gospel. We conquer by pleading with him to do that work in our life so that there's actual fruit and growth taking place. And so we begin increasingly to practice obedience, intentional hospitality, intentionally praying for each other. One of the, one of the great tools, I was reading a Joan, uh, Juan Sanchez's little book on uh, the letters here, and he just says one of the best unused resources a church has is a picture, is a picture directory. That if, you would just, if we could just take that and start praying through the directory, you would, you would, you would be loving people so well, and you'd be uh, reaching out and getting to know people and, and maybe saying to each other, just want you to know our family prayed for you this week. Think of what that could do for the cause of Christ in our midst. Don't, let's maybe start with your own last name so everybody's not starting with, with A, right? The A-poles are going to be just swamped. Start with your last, start with the letter of your last name and just make that part of your family worship. Make that part of your family uh, at the supper table. That's what you're going to do. In your private devotions, that's what you're going to do. We have a benevolent offering. This church does wonderfully with benevolent offerings. Let's continue to do that in a way that's ridiculous. In a way that shows that the gospel has incredible power in our hearts and lives. 
Let's refuse to allow grudges in the body. We're just not going to do that. If you've got something with a brother or sister, we're not going to come to the table of the Lord and talk about the love of Jesus Christ when we refuse to be made right with someone else in the body. Jesus isn't playing games. Let's not do that. We're not going to ignore people who feel ostracized. We're going, to, we're going to beg that God gives us a, a heart that, is, that, that feels a burden for them. And, and we're not going to ignore the community that we live in. There's a mission for us, you see. And, and everything we need for all of this we have in Jesus. All the power and truth and grace we have in the table of our Lord. Where he feeds us with his own crucified body and his poured out blood. So that in his grace, in his power, in his strength, in his truth, we can die to self and we can actually love people the way that Jesus loves. And so friends, this morning as we come to the table, come, come to Jesus' table. He's the one who invites you. And come and receive all the love and grace of Jesus for you, the sinner. Come confessing your sin. Come trusting his forgiveness and come committing yourself to obedience to his commands. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you speak to us in words that are clear and true. Thank you, Lord, that you convict us, but, but Lord, we also need your power and strength and grace to move us to love, to the beautiful freedom and joy of love, to sacrifice time and money, to carve out space and busy schedules, to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others. Oh, Lord, there are so many opportunities to love each other, publicly known and private, secret. No one else maybe would recognize it. But you know, you see, you care. And Jesus, we are hungry to be a church that pleases you. As we trust in your gospel, as we love you, our Lord Jesus, and as we love one another according to your commands. And so, Lord, forgive us for our failure. Help us to grow in grace, in truth, in practice. That we, Lord, could have the the joy of knowing one day because of your presence in our life and the truth of the gospel, we will eat at the tree of life in the presence and the paradise of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.